0: What's up, everyone? Good morning again, and welcome to the Life Christian Church. Let's give a big round of applause again for our awesome worship team leading us this morning. If we haven't met before, my name is Christian Smith. I'm our Executive Director of Pastoral Ministries here at TLCC, and it's a great pleasure for me to be able to spend a few minutes today sharing with you the last message of our series that we've been in these past few weeks called the story of Jesus explore a better story and we've been talking about uh, what the true story is of Jesus and who he is what he's done for us and we can better understand how our lives and our stories are impacted when we really understand the story of Jesus. The reality is is that all of us, all across time and all different sorts of cultures, all live under and are influenced by some overarching story that impacts and frames our world for us. We can think about the ancient Greeks having their Olympian gods and how that might have impacted their story, how they understood their lives in the world, or that kind of the Nordic myths or a pantheon of gods in Hinduism or Buddhism or all the different kinds of stories over time. And they all impact how we see the world, how we live, how we process our purpose or our future or where we've come from. The other day, I just heard um, a very random story, but uh, Eskimos have had an uh, an ancient tradition within their culture uh, where they believed that when someone would die, they would spend the rest of their lives hunting in the afterlife, kind of in a body. But the thing is, is that you hunted with the body that you died with. And therefore, once someone got to a certain age, they would, the, 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 someone's children would make the parent have to go out into the wilderness by themselves with no resources and starve to death and die. So that they would die with a body that wasn't too decrepit at that point so that they could then spend eternity hunting in their current body. It's a great story to start a sermon off with, isn't it? Very exciting and invigorating. Stories impact us the story that we live with and that we live under. The reality is, just like historically, sociologically, philosophically, go down the list, is that the story of the Western world is Christianity. It has been Christianity. As Paul Mayer, a professor of ancient history notes, he says, even knowledgeable believers will be amazed at how many of our present institutions and values reflect a Christian origin. Not only countless individual lives, but civilization itself was transformed by Jesus Christ in the ancient world. His teachings elevated brutish standards of morality, halted infanticide, enhanced human life, emancipated women, abolished slavery, inspired charities and relief organizations, created hospitals, established orphanages and founded schools. The foundation of our Western society is largely can can be traced back to the person of Jesus Christ and his teachings that he put forth that we now have in Scripture. Even when you look at the Declaration of Independence and it's all men are created equal, that hasn't always been implemented in the right kind of way. But the idea of human rights. Of us having values and justice in these kinds of things come from the Christian worldview that elevated how we understood the world to where we are today in our current context but though that might be interesting sociologically the, the fact that Jesus Christ and and the teachings of Christianity is the story that we live in today it does not necessarily make that story true I think that we're at a place in our society, in our culture, in our world, and most of you can understand this, where, where, we might be, where we might live under the overarching narrative of the Christian story, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we believe in the teachings of that story. And all of us know that we can be inspired by a story that's not true necessarily. Right? We can, like, you know, what's your favorite novel or what's your favorite movie? You might absolutely love it, but it doesn't mean that you actually believe it. Like, let's say you love Harry Potter. Do we have Harry Potter fans in here? Some people who like Yes. we uh, a very certain kind of person. The kind that would squeal when you mention if you like Harry Potter. Just kidding. We have, like, Lord of the Rings. Anyone like Lord of the Rings? Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, these are all, like, you know, the different, like, classic fan- contemporary fantasy novels or books. Maybe, like, the ancients and you like Homer and the Iliad and uh, the Odyssey. And we all have these different stories that we might be super inspired by. But it doesn't mean that we necessarily think that they're true, right? But what if something happened? What if you're a massive Harry Potter fan and one day you're walking out in the woods and you pick up a little twig and all of a sudden you say some random selection of words and like a lightning bolt comes out of the twig. First of all, that'd be awesome. (laughs) Your entire worldview would be kind of changed a little bit, right? You'd be like, wait, what, there might be truth behind the story that I love that was inspiring me? And then you would spend the rest of your life, probably, trying to figure out like, how to cast spells, let's be real. You'd Be concocting your own different spells so you could get what you'd want. But your entire life would then all of a sudden be changed because you realized something that was your story all of a sudden became a true story. Now, I think this is an interesting correlation with Christianity because Christianity is becoming a myth to our culture. It's becoming a myth. The, the concept of God, of maybe even resurrection or, or uh, of healing or of Jesus is understood as now it's just like a teacher or prophet or an interesting historical figure who has changed and impacted the world through their teachings. But what if, in a similar way to you finding the wand in the middle of the forest, if you, if you found something that made you actually think that the story of Christianity was true, that went on... You know, Easter Sunday, you have people who don't believe in the story of Christianity, but they'd say things like, like, we all should experience resurrection, right? That's the kind of thing, it becomes like a poetic phrase in the same way that you might quote something from Homer as a poetic phrase for us today. But we actually realized that there was something true about resurrection that was actually available to us. It wasn't a mythological concept that made us feel better, but it was a real possible historical thing for us, or that, that Jesus was actually real in his teachings and the idea of the Holy Spirit. All these different mythological concepts that we take Christianity to be in our culture today because we're skeptical of its teachings were actually true. How much would that change your story? So today what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at the central truth claim of Christianity. And we're going to offer, I'm going to offer, some reasons as to why it might possibly be true. And that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the, the, the proverbial wand in the forest that we can look at and go, maybe there's actually something here that makes us think that this Christian story we all live in is really true. See, The, the resurrection is the central plot point of the Christian story. And if it's true, then Christianity and its teachings and Jesus' teachings are given immensely more value. And if it's not true and it's fake, then our faith is entirely in vain. That's 1 Corinthians, uh, uh, this is a, a letter that the apostle Paul, who was a follower of Jesus, wrote uh, to the churches in, uh, to a church in the city of Corinth. And he says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Our entire faith is contingent upon this guy Jesus saying that he died and that he was going to raise from the dead and the fact that people around him actually saw him after he died. That's what all of Christianity is premised on. If that didn't happen, then Jesus isn't proven as God and therefore the teachings of Jesus do not carry the authority that some of us may have thought or actually believed. So I'm gonna go into some detailed, like historical research, which is what all of you were hoping for this morning, is it not? You guys know, Who knows what memes are? I didn't expect a lot of people in the 9 a.m. crowd to, because people who go to 9 a.m. services probably don't know what memes are, right? Kind of seems like that. If you wake up early, you don't know what memes are. Um, But the 11 a.m. crowd, all of you, probably looking at memes this morning. Um, So this is what I thought of, uh, you know, like they have those classic memes where it'll be like, nobody, and then it says nothing. Absolutely nobody, says nothing. You know know those memes? Anyone have seen those memes? My life is nobody, absolutely nobody, Christian Smith, copious amounts of historical research and data that really no one asked for. So I somewhat apologize and I don't, but I think we're actually going to have fun looking at some of these historical facts. So the first proverbial wand we find in the forest of something that gives us evidence that, that, that this guy, Jesus might actually have died and rose from the dead as crazy as that might sound is what we call the new Testament, the new Testament, right? So the Bible, Is a book that's been written over uh, a couple thousand years, uh, and what we have is is the Old Testament text which comes before Jesus, then Jesus comes and the people write texts about Jesus, or presumably that's, our, that's what we're posing today. And so we have that latter half, not quite half of the book, but the latter half of the book, which is the New Testament. And within the New Testament, particularly the gospels and some of the early what are called epistles or writing by those writings and letters to churches, by those who followed Jesus, that attest to who Jesus was and that say that they knew him before his death, that they saw him die and that they saw him after he died in like a real physical body. And so we come upon this point of evidence and we go, okay, either this is all fake or something had to have happened here to where this isn't actually real evidence or, um, or it actually is true evidence. And so what we have to do is we have to go, the first thing is, isn't the New Testament actually historically reliable? Just like a basic simple question. Why would I trust this piece of evidence? And remember, the stakes are super high here because if Jesus actually rose from the dead, it changes the entire story, right? So I'm going to keep coming back to that. I'm going to get stuck in like some numbers here, but we're going to make sense of them. We're going to make sense of them. But like remember how high the stakes are. It's not just about numbers. It's about eternal destiny. It's about our lives today. So the evidence, this isn't just for some random belief. This is the belief that would change everything within our lives. So one of the first things of why I would say that the New Testament, we should actually really consider it as a reliable document that tells truth is because one, it was written close to the actual events that it reports. And two, it was corroborated by eyewitnesses which is how we want to ever get good evidence in any circumstance. You can watch trials or whatever it might be. You want people who were, uh, who were giving evidence close to the actual event, timeline-wise, and that that, ev- and that that evidence can be corroborated by eyewitnesses. Let's do a quick little thought experiment here. And I've done this before. You might have seen me do it before, but I'm positive you probably don't remember me doing it before, so I'm gonna do it again. All right, imagine that you have an old, old story in your family that came from your great-great-granny. And that story was passed down to you, and it's been told over the course of 200 years. But imagine that there's no trace of writings about it. It kind of has this mythical air about it. It's not very obvious that it would be true. It's it, there's a little bit too extravagant of claims. You probably wouldn't give much credence to it. It's just kind of an oral tradition that that comes down to you. But now imagine that you have a document from your granny. So she wrote it down with details about all of the events and it's written in a way that seems more like it's historical, like it's trying to communicate something that's true. You would be more prone to believing this story than the other, or maybe you don't necessarily believe it, but you would give more probability to it than to the other document. But imagine that you have now, you find another uh, document from an, an acquaintance of Granny that has written something about the event, and then you find another person who has written a document about this seemingly incredible event and another and another and so on and so forth to, you re- to where you realize that first of all, granny was very popular. She had a lot of friends. And then second of all, granny had a lot of friends who believed this incredible event about her and wrote down evidences for it as well. So all of a sudden you have it 200 years ago a bunch of documents all saying something that you originally might not have believed because it sounded too crazy, and all of a sudden you have some real reasons to dig in to see if it would actually be true. So first of all, that's a lot of evidence. And second of all, how often do you have things that are 200 years old in your life? like? I don't, own, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't own anything 200 years old. I have to go to a museum to see that kind of thing. So, right, you normally don't have things that are that old in your possession. Well, this is very similar to the story of, of what we have with the New Testament and its claims of an event that took place, except a few differences that are important. It was written by a bunch of old dudes and it was 2000 years ago, not 200, and granny had a beard and all of her friends had beards too. Very important differences, always note the beard. See, the New Testament is like a collection of letters talking about things that are going on while they're happening or right after they've happened by the people who they were happening to. The Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, contain relatively exhaustive accounts of Jesus' life, and they were written by either eyewitnesses or direct friends of eyewitnesses who were going to study to provide certainty for what what had actually happened with Jesus' life. And it's clearly written in a historical and not a mythical way, that we'll touch on that a little bit later. And it's clear that they intended it to be history. And it was written as early as 50 AD and as late as 100 AD between the different books. So Jesus was born around what we would consider, you know, zero AD, whereas now we're in 20, what year is it, 2021? As long as it's not 2020, I'm happy. And so Jesus was born around zero AD, And then he died around 30, 33 AD. People have some disagreements about when exactly. And so these guys wrote these books in corroboration with, in corresponding with other books that people were writing at that time, letters and documents and such, that are all speaking about an event that happened in their lifetime. So it wasn't oral tradition that was just being passed on. It was people who were actually walking around with Jesus or people who who, uh, uh, who were friends with the people who were walking around with Jesus and were seeing crazy stuff happen that they never expected to happen. This is not part of the plan. That'd be a whole other sermon, but, but the expectation of the resurrection of Jesus was not something that anyone was planning on. So they're all shocked. They're all surprised. And they're like, well, we have to write this down and we have to pass this around and we have to start a movement off of this kind of thing. So the writing within the generation of Jesus, not a whole bunch longer. But, so that's the document that we have in our hands when we pick up the New Testament, which is kinds of crazy. A super old document with all these different teachings about Jesus. But we might... We have a lot of questions that can come from this. And by the way, I'm gonna probably raise more questions than, you've all been, than you might have necessarily ever asked, but these are the kinds of questions that I've met tons of people who come and you start to have this conversation and these are all the things, I've, I've been asked all these different questions many, many times. Um, they just didn't want me to give all the historical detail for the answers, but again, we're gonna do that anyway. So some people have questions like, okay, well we have this book that's coming from Jesus' time 2000 years ago, but hasn't it been lost in translation? Right, like, How do we know that we actually know what they wrote? That's a big question, because if we don't answer that, then how do we know that they actually wrote about the resurrection of Jesus? How do we know that didn't get transformed into that over time, or people wanted to manipulate the system and get power, so they started writing their own kinds of things into it so that it could be the faith that they wanted, or they heard different stories and developed myths and all that stuff. How do we actually know what those first people wrote? It's been so long ago and translated into Latin and translated into, into different languages and German and English. We have so many different translations today. These are questions that that frequently um, uh, will open up to us, but we have to realize that the time gap between the documents were written and the earliest copies that we have of the book is remarkably small compared to the rest of the ancient documents that we have from that time period. So Paul, he writes his book. I mean, he, he writes his, all of his different letters, right? Now we do not have that first letter. That'd be, that'd be unprecedented in all of history if we actually had that letter. Like that kind of stuff doesn't exist in history. But if Paul has his first manuscript that he writes, right, his first letter to the church in Galatia or something, and then what they do is they have groups of people who are called scribes with their profession. They, they're, they're the ancient copy and pasters where they would actually just write down the document from the other one, and they would hand that off to someone else. And so what we have is we have a version of the earliest, of the earliest manuscripts around 225, we have all of them put together of the entire New Testament. Those are the earliest ones we have, okay? Um, we have like little pieces of the New Testament about 35 A.D., uh, about 35 years after they were written, which is really early. I won't go into too much detail on that. But we have we have this, this compilation of the New Testament that are copies of the original letters that were written about 225 A.D. Now, your first thought is probably, wow, that's a really long time in between when it was written, right? Like let's say 60 AD to where we have a copy from 225. It feels like a long time, right? That might kind of scare us a little bit. But what we have to realize is that um, we can actually have a very strong historical sense that these are the, a representation of the original document that, let's say, Paul wrote. Remember, why is this important? Because Paul is a guy who, what we see in Scripture, is really saying that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If that got lost in translation over time, and Paul didn't actually mean that when he first wrote it, then all of it would be in vain. Why would we believe any of it? Am I making sense? We I need to, like, make, draw more diagrams of granny or something? So, compared to the other ancient manuscripts that we have that are comparable in timeline— this is a remarkably small amount of time. To have it in 225 AD so that there's, there's only a, 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 about a couple hundred, not even a 200 year split between when it was written and the first copies that we have is a shockingly small amount of time. So for instance, let's say it's 225 years between the writing of Scripture and our first actual uh, 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 hands on a manuscript of, of when that manuscript was written. If you take seven other ancient documents that we heavily trust as being representative of what the authors originally wrote, such as like some of Plato's writings, you ever read them in philosophy class? Herodotus' history, um, and some other books, the average time gap between it being written and a manuscript that we have of a a copy of it, of of it being written, is one thousand one hundred and fifty-seven years. 100, one thousand, one hundred fifty seven years. So people transcribed it transcribed it, 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 all of Plato's writings over time because paper dies and all that stuff. And so they make a new copy and a new copy. Well, you get worried that every new copy that something's going to get messed up in the copy. Well, we don't have any of like Plato, like Plato and all these different documents. If you average them out, it's w- over a thousand years before we have a version of Plato. In my history classes and all that kind of stuff when I was a kid, no one ever told me not to trust that what Plato, what I have in Plato's The Gaelic Wars wasn't actually real. You know what I mean? There's a little bit of a difference in how we perceive that as a culture, scripture versus other sorts of writings. Not only this, but there are more early manuscripts of the Greek New Testament than there are of any ancient books. So for instance, there are 5,868 manuscripts. Again, Paul wrote, let's say the book of the book of Galatians, what we have today, and then someone transcribed it and someone transcribed it. And then you have like, let's say 500 manuscripts out there. Well, in terms of all the new Testament, we have 5,868 early ancient manuscripts of scripture. And so why is that important? It's because if you have more manuscripts, then you can see if, uh, if, if there is symmetry between the different manuscripts. And let's say that you have 500 different manuscripts of the book of Galatians, and all of them say the same thing, then you can trust that they're all saying what the original writer wrote. So, like, you can be worried, like, is this like the telephone game? Like, one person told one person, and they told this person, and they told this person, and then all of a sudden, everyone's saying different things, but we just got one story. We got the story where Jesus rose from the dead, but 99% of them were like, this isn't actually true. No, that's not how it works. First of all, because they wrote it down. It wasn't the telephone game. They were professional, like that was their entire job was accurately writing it down. And what happened was, if the telephone, if, we, if it got lost in translation, this is what would happen. This person would write, Paul would write the book of Galatia in, in let's say, in 50 AD or something like that. He, the book to Galatia, he writes that book and then someone writes a copy of that book and someone writes a copy of that book. And if, if, everyone, if we come to the end and there's 500 different copies lined up at the end that we have, If all of them are the exact same, then we know that they came from the first source. Right? Does that make sense? So what we have is between all these different manuscripts of the New Testament, over 5,000, 98 to 99 percent similarity between the texts, which is shockingly accurate, shockingly accurate. And what some people will go is, I'd be like, "Oh, but there's there, there's 200,000 differences," is what someone would say between the texts and that one percent. We get worried about that one percent. What's happening in that one percent? They're they're almost entirely grammatical differences. It's like like the equivalent of putting the t after the h in the, and we count that as a difference. Is that there are virtually no differences between all the different manuscripts, which makes us realize that they all come back to the same source. Which makes us realize that when we hold the Gospels, when we hold the New Testament letters in our hands today, we can trust that we're actually reading the version that the Apostle Paul wrote in the first place. That's kind of crazy. It's crazy to me. It's really cool. We have better evidence, uh, better reasons to believe that the New Testament is an accurate document than we have of any ancient history source alexander for alexander the great for instance who was born like 350 bc i think so 350 years before jesus we like study alexander the great in school and such alexander the great there's no we have no contemporary writings of his life all we have is is our our two uh biographies 400 years after alexander the great's life that uses A whole bunch of sources that wrote about Alexander the Great's life, and then we have, I think it's like uh, 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 Plutarch writes about Alexander the Great. So for Alexander the Great, we have nothing contemporary to his time, nothing within the generation, nothing like that do we have in possession. But we go to history class, we learn about Alexander the Great, we believe the stories that it's telling us. But what about this guy Jesus? We have the actual documents of the people who were with him, and we can trust that those documents are actually real and that they're saying what they at least believed to be true. Now, we might be concerned about, let's say there being like differences in the gospel. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about this one. These are all questions that I've asked at least. And if not, then I may be making you doubt a lot of things in your life, bringing up all the questions that you've yet to ask. You can be with me on my doubt journey. We might be worried about there being differences in the gospel. We might look at it and go, oh, but this story says this, and this story says this. I won't make you raise your hand because then you're going to be in the shame group of doubt with me. But you might have thought that before. And uh, we can look at a story like Judas, for instance, where you can look at Judas, and one gospel says that he was hanging from a tree, and that's how he died, uh, that he hung himself after he betrayed Jesus. And then one story would say that he fell on the ground and and his, his guts spilled out on the ground. Well, there are two different stories and sometimes people will say, well, the gospels are inconsistent historically. I cannot trust them. Think about this. The Titanic after, after the Titanic sank, they did a a poll of the different people who were on the Titanic and they asked them, "Did did the Titanic split in half before it sunk or did it sink in one piece? Now, if you're in the water next to the Titanic and it's split in half, that probably would have been a pretty big event. Right? You would have noticed what happened there in that moment. They pulled them, and it was 50-50. Did split, didn't split. Now, because there is a historical inconsistency in the eyewitnesses' record of whether the ship split in half or not, does that make you doubt that the ship sunk? No, right? Because that's the much bigger uh, uh, piece of evidence there that every 100% of people are saying, the Titanic sank. The peripheral historical details almost don't matter in this instance. Right now we're being just historical scholars, we have very very big glasses on, very good big magnification, and we're just nerdily looking at the historical data. Right now, we don't have to assume the inspiration of Scripture for what we're talking about. I am not talking about Scripture as a magical book that's perfect in all of it says. We can talk about that. That's a really important conversation to have. But right now, we're just looking at this as historians, looking at what could have happened in the ancient world. And what we're seeing here is that a whole bunch of people, no matter the peripheral context, though the Bible is so similar in its stories, it's actually amazing how much corroboration there is between them but what we're seeing is that all these different people who were unwilling to believe in Jesus decided to believe in him. And with all this evidence that we're looking at right now, uh, most skeptical scholars, almost all skeptical scholars who do not believe Jesus rose from the dead, based on the evidence we've just laid out, they believe that the apostles believe that they saw Jesus after he died. So though skeptical scholars today don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They believe that the people who wrote the Bible really, really believed what they said, that they were not lying or making it up, that that it was was so real to them. And so what skeptical scholars then do, and this is kind of what we'll, in terms of historical scholarship stuff, close up on here, is that what, what scholars will do then, skeptical scholars, is they'll try and find different ways to explain the resurrection, the biblical data. Because they're going, all right, we generally think that they really believe that this is what happened. But we don't think it happened. So then what? They must have been tricked or something must have happened here. And we have four different ways that scholars process the potential resurrection of Jesus in the biblical data. And the first one is something called the hallucination hypothesis. So these are, I'm going to tell five options of how to process the resurrection, of what could have happened based upon the fact that we have a trusty historical document in the New Testament. The first one is the hallucination hypothesis. The eyewitnesses hallucinated seeing Jesus after his death. I don't know if anyone's ever thought about this one before, but I definitely thought about this one before. Where maybe, and there's been a lot of study and a lot of scholarship, a lot of ink spilled on this one where perhaps Peter, he was under such emotional distress that he hallucinating seeing Jesus after he abandoned him and he rejected being associated with Jesus. He was under such distress, he thought he was gonna be the Messiah, and so he had a hallucination of Jesus. Possible. Less possible is 500 people hallucinating Jesus, which scripture attests to. Less possible is the hallucination of Jesus physically eating fish, because hallucinations are aphysical, and hallucinations are subjective, meaning they're f- typically for almost, almost across the board in terms of studies, only you, you, your, your hallucination is your hallucination, not the other person's hallucination. And then also that hallucinations are short, and typically don't last 40 days for 500 people, or however many people saw him over that time, we don't know exactly, but there is a report of 500 people. So when we look at hallucination, we go, that's not likely. But notice here, notice the massive victory here in terms of, uh, of for Christians, I'm assuming from my perspective, what I think is a victory, is that the scholars saying, Peter really thought he saw Jesus. That's huge. That's huge. All right. Next, the other. So that's the first. This is the second, which is conspiracy theory, that the apostles were liars who conspired to create the most successful lie in all of history. Right, so the apostles, they, they made this story up. Maybe they're making a power grab. They wanted to start a church and lead people and make money or they, whatever reason, you might wanna come up with for it to be a conspiracy. I've also thought of this one. I don't know if you guys have. But there are some issues with this because there are, there are conditions that need to be met in order for a conspiracy to be held by a group of people. And I had a cold case crime detective um, uh, who used to be a prosecutor in LA. He had 100% prosecution rate, which is kind of crazy, Who taught me in my master's program. By the way, I don't know if I mentioned this, but my master's is in something called Christian apologetics, which is essentially providing rational defense of different premises of the Christian faith, like using philosophy and math and science and history and all that kind of stuff. So um, I do know a little, well, I think I know a little bit of what I'm talking about, but we're in class in this cold case crime. crime scene detective, his name is J. Warner Wallace. He's great, look him up, awesome books on this kind of stuff. And he talks about, in his context, what you need for a conspiracy to be held and there are five different major conditions. And imagine that a group of people rob a bank, and they each get caught, but they're lying, saying that none of them were a part of it, and they're in a jail somewhere. There are five things that they need. One, they need a, you need a small number of conspirators. If the group gets too big, then it's hard to hold a lie, basically, right? You need thorough and immediate communication abilities, because you can go, Yo, did we, where were you at 5 p.m.? You need to be able to tell someone quickly in order to be able to hold the lie. You need a short time span to hold the lie. It's much harder holding a lie over 10 years than it is, you know, one day. So you need a short time span. You need significant relational connections between the people, because why am I going to protect you if I don't care about you, versus if you're my brother or my family, then I might protect you more. And then fifth of all, you need little or no pressure put on you, right? That's like torture techniques are intended to try and get truth out of people. And so they would, you need little or no kinds of that pressure though. And so if you're in prison and, and you, you have none of these different, uh, in, in a jail cell being held, being prosecuted for this, it's hard to hold the lie if you don't have these five conditions. Now, think about the apostles who were holding this. There was a bunch of people who were running around saying that Jesus rose from the dead. They had no communication abilities. iPhones were not invented yet, shockingly enough. And they're traveling all around the area going out and evangelizing to where they can't reach other people. They held this for their entire lives. They had, some of them came from backgrounds in which they would have naturally hated each other. There was no necessary relational connection between much of them. And there was massive amounts of pressure put on them. They were holding the lie until their death. And as people have said, nothing proves sincerity like martyrdom. Most of the apostles were killed Why would they have lied about something that garnered them no wealth, that garnered them having to live impoverished, I mean, you know, uh, uh, running around the wilderness trying to go tell people about this thing that didn't actually happen so that people could go and kill them? Very unlikely. The disciples would have had to have been incredibly creative liars. And then with all of these, we still have the question of, where's the body, by the way? Hallucination hypothesis, where's the body? Conspiracy theory, where's the body? No one ever found it, and they would've known where it was because it would've been, uh, would been put into some, uh, a famous tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. That's a whole other kind of topic. All right, and then the, fourth one is one, or the third one is one called a the swoon theory, which is that Jesus survived the crucifixion and he never actually died. So he was crucified, he was put in the tomb, he was wrapped in cloth, all this kind of stuff, and somehow he got out of the tomb and was walking around. I don't know about you but I think Jesus probably would have been asking for Advil and a cortisone shot after he got out of that tomb. But Jesus was walking around as a functional human, that's what all the reports say. So how could we have expected that he would have survived the suffocation of linen after being crucified on a cross for the amount of time that he was? It's incredibly unlikely, one, that he would have survived it because Roman soldiers kill but would be killed if they didn't uh, properly execute the execution of a crucifixion. Um, and then we have different things, like it looks like through the scriptures, so you can see that Jesus's lungs collapsed. The soldiers didn't break his legs because they were so sure that he had died. And then again, he was encased in the sheets and entombed, which should have ensured that there's no way he could have, after being crucified, get out. And then somehow the rockets moved. Just doesn't make much sense. And even if all of that unlikely stuff happened, he would have been not been able to physically walk around. And if anyone saw him, they wouldn't have been surprised that he's walking around in a great amount of pain. There you go, oh my gosh, how did you survive this thing? Instead, he's showing his physical body to them, the, the, his, his hands with holes in them. And he's going, I'm here, I'm made whole, I'm restored into some kind of new and glorified body. He did not come back. It wasn't resuscitated in some kind of way. He had experienced resurrection in some kind of way. And then the fourth theory is that the resurrection story is a myth not intended to be a factual account, the myth theory, that it's intended like the Olympian gods. It's intended to be just this inspiring, fun, fictional story. Well, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, it's not written, like literary scholars look at it, it's not written in a mythical way at all compared to other ancient documents. It uses the style of a Greco-Roman uh, biography, which is a very specific genre of that time. And it's too close to the actual, uh, the writings were written too close to the actual event for a myth to develop. Right? It couldn't become a mythical story because, you know, Paul's running around when it would have become a mythical story and he would have been saying, wait, no, this isn't what actually happened. So we can trust that it was actually people trying to write What is true? And so those are the first four options of what could have happened if we kind of trust the New Testament as a historical document. These are the ways that we can process Jesus' resurrection if we don't think that his resurrection was possible. But there's a fifth option, that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. I think that we see at least when we come to the historical, just the basic historical, maybe sometimes boring, but also fun and fascinating historical data, and we see the evidence put before us, I think that we have to assume a posture of possibility and openness. And there might be some of you who don't believe this stuff, Maybe some of you who have been living under the myth of Christianity, it's a nice idea, but you realize maybe like you don't really, really trust that this stuff is actually, actually true. I would encourage you, there might be things that are closing your mind off to the, to the possibility of the resurrection. And maybe that's, maybe that's uh, how you've been treated by Christians over time. Maybe that's things in the church's history Maybe that's certain teachings that you think are kind of crazy. There might be a whole bunch of reasons, aside not having anything to do with what we're talking about today, that, that keep you from putting your trust and your faith in God. And then maybe resurrection just sounds too crazy to you, but I just encourage you to actually be open to what it means to just accept the possibility that a guy came to the world, claimed to be God, and proved that he was God. And what if that were true for your life? What would that do to your entire story? And if you ever watched movies before and you you think like, "Man, I wish this movie were real life." You ever watch like Marvel? Like how cool would it be if there were superheroes? How cool would it be if there was a one ring to rule them all and we're in a great epic battle and people are fighting with swords and we have the life seems so much more meaningful and big when we watch movies and read stories. Those are little stories compared to what the Bible is telling us about our world about God, about our purpose in, the, in our lives, being image bearers of a divine grand being that created us to be a part of his process of lovingly ruling this world and bringing where it's supposed to be. And right now we're in a battle. We're in a bigger battle than any story, any movie today tells us. We're in a battle to bring the love of God into the world, to make things right that are broken. That's a pretty sweet story. That's a pretty sweet story. And the most important piece of evidence, I believe that if we're being open, like rational, this isn't like fake faith kind of stuff, everything we can hear is real scholarship, I can give you all the stuff that you, that you could wanna look at for it. And it's okay if you have doubts and questions. You're always going to. I still have questions about things, 100%. We, what, we all live off of faith, whether, believe, whether we believe in God or we don't believe in God. All of us believe in something, even though we have questions about that thing. We just need like 51% evidence, you know what I mean? We just need to, and I think some of us can take the step today of the you know, the 2% from 49 to 51. And I encourage you just to test it, to test your trust today and say, you know what, like, God, if you're there, I don't know if you are, I've gone through this in my life, this exact conversation with God before, God, just, like, just show yourself to me, because I think you're probably there. I don't know for a fact. God, Luke wrote his gospel in Acts to help give, to help to give the readers certainty of what they believed. God wants to show you himself through things like we've talked about today. He wants to show you that he's real and that your story is so much bigger than you know. And then for those of us who do believe in God and and you're like, I don't need to be convinced about Jesus, is that God continues to want to increase our level of trust and faith in him. And think, you might experience a miracle in your life or an answered prayer, and what does that do for you? That helps you trust God more, right? That helps you wanna, the, the, the next day, tomorrow, when you're struggling, or tomorrow when you're doubting the purposes that he has for you, and sometimes you go back and you go, oh, but God, I remember that miracle you did in my life. I remember you answering a prayer that I had. Today, I can trust in you just a little bit more. I can trust in you just a little bit more because of what you're doing in my life. I think all the time when I'm struggling, I promise you, I think about this stuff. It might just be a help for me, but I think it could be a hope for a lot of us is to remember like the reality. God is not, Jesus is not the fictional fairy character. That God was an actual person that people saw in real life, and God is just as real today as to us as he was to the people who were writing about the things that they saw in their lives. No matter what we might feel or think, I believe it is true that Jesus is alive. And it's the most important thing that has happened in history, and whether we know it or not, it's the most important thing that's happening in our lives today.